Hello, I'm Shay Russell from Fortune and Freedom. And joining me today for this very special edition of Fortune and Freedom is John Butler. Here at Southbank, he's the editor of the Fleet Street Letter. However, he has an incredible background as a city analyst and a strategist and has worked at major investment banks such as Deutsche Bank and Lehman Brothers. John, it is a pleasure to see you again. How are you? Yeah, very good, Shay. Thank you. Now, hopefully I didn't uh, leave out too many details of your incredible background, and it is such a privilege to have you here because we don't often get uh, contrarian thinkers putting their view out on Fortune and Freedom. But I want to kick off with something that you have written for your subscribers of your Fleet Street Letter Service. Let's talk about the concept of the bear market in trust. Now, this is actually something you wrote about back in January, uh, and it's looking uh, rather prophetic right about now as Mark Markets are tanking are particularly hard in the US compared to the UK. Tell me, what drove you to come to that conclusion? Well, I took a look at the, the, the composition of the big bull market that we've been in. I mean, in a way, you can trace it all the way back to 2009, early 2009. And the composition of this bull market has been unusually heavy in the intangible uh, asset valuation multiples. And what I mean by that is that the industry sectors such as tech that are very heavy in basically intellectual property or certain consumer luxury non-discretionary sectors where brand valuations can be very, very high. These really drove the market. If you take a look at this bull market, basic industries really haven't done a whole lot. They've been trailing the whole way. And indeed, in some basic industries, they're trading at multiples today, which are still deep value multiples, as if there's been no bull market at all. So this this has been a bull market in trust. That is the belief that these intangible assets that are really difficult to value, people simply trust that they will be worth what what valuations say they'll be worth for a long time into the future. And you can look at firms like Coca-Cola that have very successfully managed their brand and the intangible value thereof and done extremely well out of it. But historically, they're the exception, not the rule. And so when we got to January this year, I saw things starting to roll over a bit. I thought the timing was right. And I thought we were going to be at the beginning of a general repricing of these intangibles lower. And so what you wanted to do was get defensive and, and rotate into the tangible basic industries, which would still provide dividends and still provide protection against what has become a very inflationary environment. Now, following on from that, I want to touch on something that you uh, did write in your June newsletter to your subscribers. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read this quote out to you and then I'm going to follow on with my question. Debt burdens, public and private, are far larger today as a percentage of national income than they were back in the 1970s. The financial sector is far more complex and also a much, much larger as a share of the economy. Now, granted, the Federal Reserve Bank hasn't led this tightening cycle. But as you certainly note, uh, they are becoming, they are the most aggressive central banks right now. But you also point out that people are far more indebted than they were the last time we saw these market conditions. Tell me, does the Federal Reserve Bank have the room to continue tightening as aggressively as they want to? And I guess more importantly for people based in the UK, 
does the Bank of England, uh, or will the Bank of England be able to follow the Fed's lead? Well, certainly, this is the situation we're in. I mean, look, obviously, inflation is now elevated, and obviously, central banks have a credibility problem. This includes the Fed, and they're making clear they're going to do something about it. When you step back, of course, things do already look a lot like the 70s because the inflation is already you know, well established uh, and yet growth is not particularly healthy. So it's looking very stagflationary. At the end of the 1970s and beginning of the 80s, of course, Paul Volcker arrives on the scene and decides he's going to wring the inflation out of the system, even though he knows it's going to cause a recession, and particularly quite a deep one. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. So people are drawing this, this parallel, which, which is reasonable to draw. It's totally reasonable to draw. But some things are different. And in fact, the problem is even bigger. That is, this, the reason why we're, we're ending up in a stagflationary situation today is actually a bigger problem. As, as you quoted, right, debt burdens, public and private, are that much bigger. Central banks' ability to fight this inflation with higher interest rates is far more circumscribed. And the risk of that causing not just a recession, but a major financial crisis is therefore larger. So central banks are really in a bind, and the, the, to mix metaphors, as I've been doing in recent months, central banks have been walking a tightrope backwards into a corner, right? <laughs> because they've been trying to do this balancing act for years, and they're just rooming out of room for maneuver. I mean, who on earth wants to try to walk backwards on a tightrope into a corner? And how on earth do you get out of that? Well, the, sh the short answer is that you don't. Uh, and, and so investors need to be super defensive here. And so the bear market in trust sort of, you know, is complementary as a concept, is very complementary to this macroeconomic set of conditions we're in, which absolutely screams to investors to get defensive and to invest low on the value chain, uh, as I've also written. Basic industries, which where profit margins may be very low, but they're stable. And they are stable even in a stagflationary environment. This is where you can at least try to hide and ride out the, uh, the uncertainty and, uh, that lies ahead and this repricing of the intangible assets that has already begun. Um, I'm going to borrow that phrase, try to hide and ride it out going forward. I think that's actually uh, quite succinct and it really does explain that the market environment that we are facing right now. Now, I do want to move on to another question. This is something else that you did mention in your most recent issue. Uh, and this is basically the concept of the Fed put. Now, in past uh, markets, uh, stock market cycles, uh, as you so uh, note in your newsletter, people just expect that the central bank is going to come in or a central bank of a certain country will come in and uh, either change their policy direction or create some sort of action to stop stock markets from falling. Now, while people expect this based on um, past actions from central banks, do you actually think this is likely this time around? Look, every central bank has a point at which it's going to blink. And that's just the nature of it. They will obviously do what they you know, can to try and keep inflation and inflation expectations stable, to try and keep the economy and the financial system stable. But if things start to crack, you know, they will come in. They will do what has to be done to protect their respective financial systems. This is the, this is the unspoken third mandate that every central bank implicitly has. They try to keep inflation fairly low. They try to keep growth in the economy fairly stable. And yet, when push comes to shove, they absolutely positively are going to come to the rescue 
of their respective financial systems. Now, no one knows, though, where the pain threshold is, you know, where they are going to blink and come in and do something. Who knows precisely what? Because clearly they create a new rule book every time you know, there, there's a major issue involved uh, within that financial system. And uh, no, a lot 2008-2009. So the fact that we don't know precisely where that point is is yet another reason simply to get defensive. You, getting completely out of the market and sitting in cash when inflation is 10% is a very expensive way to try to time the market. Whereas to retreat into basic industries, paying decent dividends with stable profit margins that are inflation-proof largely, I believe that's the much better strategy. So yes, central banks will come in at some point if tightening causes difficulties, but you know, unless you have a hotline to call your central bank and get inside info regarding precisely when and how they're going to intervene, it's a loser's game. And it's better just to, again, as we discussed, to hide and ride it out in these basic industries. Um, okay, so I think from now on in future chats, I'm going to create a little book of John's sayings uh, because with inflation being at 10%, that's an expensive way to try and time the market. That's another good one here, and that is a very clever conclusion. So I'll be tucking that one in the back of my brain for later. Now, uh, to end today's conversation, I do want to touch on uh, a touchy subject. Now, let's talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It has absolutely dominated headlines since the middle of February. Um, for, for many reasons, and uh, sometimes it just depends on which paper you pick up as to who is winning and who is doing what. Now, without, um, you know, none of us have a crystal ball, but I do believe that you have, a, uh, you have some insight to what may be happening with the uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine and that perhaps it might end sooner than we think. Can you please expand on this? Yes, I believe that, you know, notwithstanding the, uh, the understandable bias uh, in most of the Western media to try and portray Ukraine's efforts to defend itself as not only heroic, but also effective, when you look between the lines, the rhetoric is starting to shift. And I believe in particular this is the case after Russia finally seized total control of Mariupol. That's extremely significant. Now, it took a long time, it cost a lot of lives, and it was very difficult because Ukraine put up a hell of a fight there. But the fact is they lost. This city is a port city. It's the biggest port on the Sea of Azov. What it does is it now allows the Russian military to basically supply its army not only by land but by sea. That gives them much more flexibility and it allows them now to do an end run around what is left of the Ukrainian resistance in eastern Ukraine. I believe that is the domino that leads to a pretty overwhelming Russian operation now to mop up what's left of the Ukrainian resistance on the ground. And I believe I see, again, when you read between the lines, you can see this just now beginning to be reported and more openly discussed. Henry Kissinger, for example, said in recent days that he believes now that the only way we're going to sort this out is to acknowledge that the far southeastern part of Ukraine simply is historically 
part of Russia's natural influence and presence in the region. And if, you, and if Ukraine is unwilling to cede any of that territory, then the conflict risks escalating into something that would lead to costs that are absolutely unthinkable and unbearable, not only by Ukraine itself, but by NATO generally. And of course, the whole world ends up paying the price to the extent that that becomes a major prolonged conflict between Russia and NATO. So I think that actually we might see a resolution to this now surprisingly soon. And if we do, expect a major relief rally in stock markets. Now you might say, wait a minute, John's bearish. Why is, why is he expecting a relief rally? Specifically because of this Ukraine uh, settlement potentially being a big surprise. But let's go back to the fundamentals we just discussed. If that relief rally happens, because of that surprisingly good news that we're nearing a resolution here, I would sell into it. I would move into even more defensive positions. And I would position myself for what is still the most challenging, fundamental investment environment within the lifetime of most people alive today. Okay? I mean, we're seriously talking about historic... Um, you know, half half a century type stuff here, because of course this big stagflation of the 70s was roughly half a century ago. So that to me is where we should focus. Fade any relief rally, get defensive and prepare to ride out an extremely challenging stagflationary macroeconomic environment for the coming years. Uh, John, that is a slightly a bearish place to leave this conversation. Nonetheless, we must wrap up today. Uh, I want to say thank you very much. Uh, it's been great to talk about your most recent issue, and I look forward to doing it in the future. Thank you, Shay.